back to the Rogue Grounds podcast, Kyle from Stall Agronomy. And today, my guest is Jeremy Miner, who I threw in front of a microphone with almost no topics to talk about. And today, we talked about anything from the basics of agronomy and what we talk about with farmers, all the way up to the most recent things when we started talking about insects and weed resistance. So stay tuned as we kind of talk about anything from basics all the way up to the scariest things we can think of right now and the kind of things that keep us up at night. So we're going to talk about kind of the basics, I guess, on agronomy or a little bit more of like, I I think a lot of times when I call on guys or as a consultant wise, I get a lot of guys that'll call me and they're like, I want to improve my yields. You know, like, all right, we we start talking about what they're doing and they they think that the planner is the problem or mm-hmm. something else and you know we really go into a discussion sometimes about like hybrids and yep and nitrogen rates and i mean basically they keep everything else the same but then they start blaming it's got to be my planner that's causing the problems and i'm like i've got a lot of guys lately that have been going through the precision planning stuff and they're just saying, Oh, I'm going to gain all this yield by having precision planning stuff on my, on my planner. I'm like, it, that's not our problem. Our problem is tillage or it's something else. And we got to try to manage through that. And I think a lot of guys are kind of missing out on, I guess, getting the basics right before they start trying to mess with some of the other things. I don't know what your guys' experiences are over there, yeah. but I, I run into that a lot here. So the, the equipment stuff is still there, but um, for us, at least, you know, on the channel side right now, I mean, we're big on products and placement, and that really seems to be the big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, guys that uh, guys that had a problem with a specific hybrid this year, um, you know, a lot of guys, it, well, so it comes back to a planner setting, right? Population. Are guys going to adjust populations on the fly or not? And a product that needs, you know, 32,000 max for a population can flex like no other guys cranking it up to 36 and just letting it roll because it works for most of their hybrids and they don't want to make the change that that was a deal breaker, you know, and then you run into a drought situation or duration like we had last last summer. And, you know, that just guy blames the hybrid. But when you start really digging into it, some of those uh, the devils in the details. So they say so. Yep. Yeah. And it- the ratio thing, it was funny. I, I can't remember the guy who tweeted it, but somebody tweeted that they heard on the radio that Marshalltown had 140 mile an hour winds. Yeah. And then he goes, then I have a C customer call me two hours later saying that he's mad that my kid's corn went down. <laughs> it, it is amazing how, uh, I don't know. It, it's like somebody's got to find the blame. And yeah, since you and I talked, I mean, the numbers went from close to 100 mile an hour to in some spots. I mean, I put it, put together a slide deck and, it, you know, three different weather uh, groups said, you know, 120 to 130 mile an hour. So it's yes. amazing that you would get somebody who would bark about that. But uh, <laughs> they, they are out there. It's funny. That's just like I, I've had corn drowned out and guys are upset that the, they got to do replant. I'm like, it was underwater for three days. What do you right. want me to do? You know, yeah, but that that does happen. I, there's always that guy. Um, but back to our, our hybrid kind of placement discussion. Um, a lot of what we run into up here is I get guys where we try to place hybrids in fields and we have just such varying environments between fields and such small mm-hmm. field sizes that we have a lot of guys that just plant, they'll start out at the highest maturity they got, and then they end up at the lowest maturity. And that's always kind of a frustrating and a struggle that I have to deal with. Cause then you have to just 
we're trying to select hybrids that are going to work across the whole farm. Right. I think we give up a lot of yield because we're not placing things exactly where they could go. Um, some neat. of these better fields get put with, uh, actually, I mean, we had an instance this year where uh, we put a, a more durable hybrid on one of the best farms. But then at the same time, we had two two hybrids that I would say had more top end yield right next to it. And mm-hmm. you're talking 20, 30 bushel that that thing got beat by by these other two hybrids. And it's just, it's one of those things where you're just like, yep, it, it, it was better as far as handling some of the moisture we had up front and some of the cooler conditions. But when you got to the end, it just didn't have the yield. And I mean, that could be 20 bushels on this farm. It could be two bushels on another farm. But there's a lot of that that kind of happens. And we try to walk guys through hybrid placement. But when it comes to the planter getting out of the shed, I mean, you know, just as good as I do, it's when it's go time, it's like we just start grabbing bags and throwing them in right. the planter. Yeah. Yep. No, yeah. It, it, it happens all the time. And, you know, we can plant so fast. That's the that can be a, a double edged sword. You know, guys can you know, we can plant 40 percent of a crop in a week. Yep. You know, if we just let guys go and have a good stretch of dry weather and, you know, when it's go time, yeah, some some things can happen to where we don't think we just go because we want to get it done. And uh, yeah, can certainly be a that can be a problem. Yeah, I have a lot of guys. I mean, I've been there before, too, where, you know, 20 minutes to them is like the end of the world. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. I had a guy uh, one year. We had an issue on the planner and I kind of made him stop so he could fix it. and where he stopped i think it was like 10 or 20 bushel difference between where he stopped and where he got going again wow but it was one of those 15 20 minute fixes where it's just you know but he's like i gotta go i gotta go it's gonna rain in like two days and if i don't get 100 acres in today and i have seen that with combines before too where guys you know we're trying to get good data in fall and i had this happen this fall we had a monitor issue where and you'll understand this one. So we had field view in the combine and it was more of just a connected or like a connection issue with the field. view. Yep. He had to kind of reset the Bluetooth on his, on his iPad. Didn't want to take time to stop to do that because it was go time. So instead of having really good data and I'm able to segregate by hybrid, I've got yield data that's in like four fields is that in one field. So he combined all these fields before we could get it correct. And once I got it fixed, it was fine, but it it literally took me 30 seconds. I hopped out of the green cart, jumped in the combine, turned the Bluetooth off, turned it back on, unplugged the field view puck, plugged it back in. And then here we go again. And it's just like, all you have to do is just turn this off, turn it back on. But that's, that's the struggle. I mean, it's like, now we've got, I was trying to do, um, some variable rate seeding and that's really screwing with the variable rate seeding racks because yep. I don't have good data and I don't have good hybrid data and it's, it's affecting next year's management decisions because we didn't want to stop for 30 seconds. Right. Yeah. And I've had that with planner data too. We had planner data get screwed up this year on another farm where a guy didn't want to stop because you just can't stop. We got to go, we got to go. Mm-hmm. You got to do this while I'm filling the planner or else I, I'm not even going to stop for you. And I mean, it's not just on the data side. We have that agronomically where we get such focus on getting stuff done and getting it in or getting it off that I think we throw things by the wayside. It's the same thing when we talk about input decisions. Yeah. A lot of guys that, you know, I, I'd say that a lot of what we do in fall 
really sets us up for the next year. There's there's tillage decisions. There's there's fertilizer decisions. I had guys I'd soil sample for, and we're soil sampling. And as fast as I get the soil samples pulled, they got the fertilizer guy coming right in right behind <laughs> me. And it's just like, and then I get the results back. And then now what do we do? Because it's already spread and we need to already add more. On. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's that's the thing. I guess we get in a hurry and we kind of forget about, you know, maybe some of these decisions we're making now just to make a decision, get something done is going to affect us even. I mean, some of those fertilizer decisions are going to affect us this year and maybe even the next year. Because yeah. we didn't get the right amount on. So yep. And the same thing with lime. I had lime guys, you know, we were a little bit behind in lime and tillage got done. And then by the time the lime guys showed up, tillage is done, they don't want to do it. So yeah. Now it's instead of next year's crop benefiting from that, now we're behind another year. So yeah. You know, and if you think back just to the past couple of falls, I'm not sure how it's been. Oh, up I here. get it. Yeah. I mean, three wet falls in a row and all of a sudden that it you know spring of 2020 when it was go time in early april or whatever you know guys were going whether it was insurance date or not and uh you know the weather was good you've had wet springs and wet falls and guys are just sick of cramming it all into you know every other day or every couple of days when you get 36 hours to go so uh yeah, we do just need to pull back once in a while and and kind of reset, recalibrate, just make sure that we're doing the right things. You know, you get one chance to get this thing in the ground. You're spending a lot sure. of money on seed, fertility, and everything else. Yep. Why not spend a couple of minutes just make sure things are set the way they need to be? Well, and I had I had a planner this year. A guy went from 16 row planner to a 24, and it's Ooh. the high speed deer exact emerge. Yep. And on a Saturday, I talked to him and he's, oh, we're going to go plant one field. And I said, you want me to come down? No, it's not worth your time. So I, I knew where they were on Saturday. And he said, yeah, we're just going to plant one field. We're going to kind of see how things work. And then we're Monday, we're just going to, it's go time. I show up Monday morning. There's 500 acres in the ground. I literally show up to the first field he planted. And I'm like, all right. And I just kind of started following the trail of planted <laughs> fields until I found the planter. And it took me like four or 500 acres before I found it. I'm like, Oh my God. Wow. And then they were just working ground and planting it right after they worked it. And when we started pulling back, so this is why I use, um, I use a, uh, a putty knife to check seed depth. Now I used to mm. use a seed finder and the putty knife. I just pull back. You can kind of yeah. slowly pick away at the furrow. Yeah. And when I pull it back, I could see the pockets in it. I mean, it's just literal air pockets. It was so wet that, and he was going so fast, he was running eight mile an hour. He just wasn't getting very good, you know, the closing Life. wheels. Right. It was leaving a nice air pocket right with the seed. Luckily, we got rain like a week later, that a nice heavy rain to close it. But I could stick my seed finder in the slot that they were leaving. And I'm just like, you guys got to stop or slow down. And they're like, well, the tillage guys can't even keep up. And they had three, so one 24-row planter, three four-wheel drive tractors with 40-foot fuel cultivators weren't keeping up with them, trying to get groundwork ahead of them. And How I'm many just acres like, was this guy trying to cover? Uh, it's about 3,000 in that farm. Uh, yeah, but man. <laughs> they were done planting corn the first week of March or May. <laughs> it just Wow. I mean, before I think he, they must have been just about done with corn right before the first week of May. And then they switched to beans. They had a bean planter running with the corn planter planting beans. And they were done with a thousand acres of beans in like three or four days. And then around the 9th of May or so, I know there was a frost yep. up in Northeast Iowa. There's a you know week or so of extremely cold weather. Yep. 
And that yeah. stuff, I think, I remember the first field was planted like April 14th or 15th around here. And I, I'd have to look back, but it took a month for that corn to come up. Yeah. Because of that cold weather we had. And it sat there in air pockets and all the other stuff I had to deal with. And when it came up, it was uneven. And we had a lot of emergence issues this year. And I had a lot of seedling diseases we wouldn't normally yep. see. So um, I've yeah. talked to a lot of guys about, I mean, you sell channel. Uh, I used to sell the Kelb. Um, we had uh, a 250 level treatment and a 500 level. Yep. And I'm telling guys, get the 500, go with a higher rate of a fungicide on it. Yeah. If you're going early, you need to, um, because we've just had too many situations where, like you say, that seed can sit in there for up to a month. Yep. And if you don't have, you know, a, a guy will try and save money by not even doing seed treatment, but he wants to go three weeks early when he plants. I mean, you're just asking for problems that you got to live with from start to finish. And yeah, we had the same thing, emergence issues that were bad. And, and you know, once you go back and actually start looking at weather data, you know, when you've got nighttime temps in the 20s and highs in the 40s, soil temps in the low 40s, you know, just getting out of the 30s and then it sits there for a week or 10 days. Yep usually not good so yeah and i think that it, it, it's going to be hopefully a more of a thing of the last couple of years but i i got the feeling guys are going to be more nervous about we got to go when it's go time and yeah but yeah it's just there's a lot of times we got to kind of stop and think about what we're doing yep um i got one guy that neighbors make fun of that i work with he he stops probably four or five times a day and just checks behind the planner and they're like, I can't believe that guy just stops all the time and looks wow. at me. I was like, yeah, he's supposed to do that. That's yeah. what I'm like, you can't see how good of a job it's doing, you yeah. know, behind you. You're just kind of throwing it in the ground and hoping it works out just fine. I mean, the planner monitor, best planner monitor in the world isn't going to tell you how well that trench is closing. So, right. Yeah. But yeah, I planted a hundred and some acres this year and I got out three or four times just to check because yep. it was obviously the first day of planting, but, um, he got me here. He gave me a bunch of crap because I was going too slow. And I said, when I went above four and a half, I was like, I saw that the singulation went way down. So when I, and it depending on soil type and it depended on tillage and said, I just, I varied quite a bit just based on how everything was going. He's like, wow. Well, yeah. At the end of the year, that was our best cornfield. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah. See? <laughs> It's not much, but I mean, those types of things can really pay off for a guy if if he's willing to do it. And it's not that much time. Um, some guys just have to force. It's just like anything else. You got to yep. force yourself to do it and get in the habit. And when you see the differences or, you know, see the results, um, that can be the seller right there. Well, even at four, probably an average of four miles an hour, 12 year old planner, I planted 113 acres in, I think I showed up we started about 10 o'clock in the morning. I was done by like seven o'clock that night. So, yeah. and we went and did another 20 or 30 acres that night before we called it a day. So yep. it really didn't slow them down too much. I mean, the grand scheme of things. And if you gain five bushel or something because of that, which actually is probably more like 10. Yeah. It, it makes up for itself. Yeah. So. I like giving guys analogies, you know, like, uh, you know, if you're going from here to Minneapolis or whatever, are you doing, if you're doing, 70 and you crank it up to 72 and do the math or 75 and do the math how many minutes sooner yeah. are you going to get there it's like really four. in the grand scheme <laughs> yeah in the grand scheme of things it's not that much 
So, uh, you That's know, my really favorite work? thing is when I get my doors blown off on the highway and then get to a stoplight <laughs> and this guy's sitting there at the stoplight. Yeah, right <laughs> You're just like, and you gain nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think we kind of forget about the basics when we're, so for me, I mean, I've gone from a, a retail role to an advisory role pretty much mm-hmm. with farmers. So I'm not trying to sell them fertilizer. I'm not trying to sell them any inputs other than seed. And not everybody I, I consult for buy seed from me anyway. And there's other guys that are actually buying seed from other dealers. And yep. I've went from the more I can sell somebody, the better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. realistically, but, you know, it, I was never that mindset anyway. I We were always trying to be conservative as much as we can, understand profitability. But now I've gone so much more the other way. I I literally told somebody the other day, I don't think people know how to interview me. <laughs> <laughs> when I walk onto a farm, because as a consultant, they're so used to uh, consultants trying to get them to cut back on everything. I'm like, well, that's not necessarily what we want to do. We want to gain, you know, what if your goal is more yield, you know, we don't want to save you a ton of money on inputs. We want to make sure we're just spending that money wisely. But sure. I think a lot of guys, we point at the easy things to try to fix. Um like I said, we, we talked about the planter. Um, I have guys that are like, well, I'll just put more nitrogen on. I'm like, well, are you increasing your sulfur rates? Well, no, but why? Like, yeah. nitrogen and sulfur are pretty closely related and even potassium yeah. with nitrogen. And yep. I think a lot of guys kind of forget about that. You know, we try to hit the easy button on in- increasing yields and we're not yeah. looking at even the basic things that could help us gain more yield. So, yep. Yeah, I don't know. I walk too many acres every year. Of just it's like oh this could have been better but I mean it I I've got a lot of guys this year when we look at profitability profitability the margin between the price of fertilizer at least during prepaid timing and the price of corn at prepaid timing one of the widest margins I've ever seen and I'm like you know if if we can gain ten bushel of corn by adding ten or twenty more units of nitrogen you're talking an eight dollar investment for a forty dollar return. That's something I do all day. Yeah. Um, you know, I I don't know what your guys' nitrogen rates are. We shoot for like a 0.8 to 0.9 per unit of yield just because of our somewhat lower yield expectations here. So I know Illinois is like closer to 1.2 pounds of N per bushel. but Yeah. And if, if we did the math here, we would be about the same. Um, it's interesting how that formula came to be. Um, but Iowa State came up with that. They've pretty much gone away from that. And, uh, you know, they've got their. Yeah, I've uh, seen it. Um, their formula, you return know. Return to nitrogen or whatever, yeah. RTN. And yeah, and it, it's based on like the corn price and the nitrogen yep. price. I mean, yep. if you did that this year, that's kind of what I've been working on. Uh, yeah. I do kind of my own formula with that. And it's been such a wide margin. I'm like, we got to up end rates just to try to get more yield. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of guys this year, which really weird to me, uh, with the price of UAN, I got a lot of guys that are trying to look at putting more UAN on up front or hmm. all their N on with UAN up front because it's cheaper. Um, but then we're giving up that benefit, I think, of split applying. Right. So I have a lot of guys, I, I literally have more than a handful of guys that asked about just spraying all their UAN on with a sprayer or spraying 50 gallons with a sprayer and 15 or 20 gallons with a planter 
I'm like, you guys are just, you're really playing with fire, especially we've had years. When mm-hmm. I first moved here, we did a lot of that. It's a lot yeah. of 40, 50 gallon UAN stuff. And man, you get into August and you got a lot of rain. That corn is yellow and it mm. just, yeah, yeah, it's done. And then your 150 bushels is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the struggle we run into. I think we're trying to, I don't know, if you put all your UAN on as, or as all your nitrogen on as UAN, Versus urea right now, there's about, I think it's a five cent unit difference. So at 200 mm. pounds, you're saving 10 bucks an acre. I, I'd rather split apply <laughs> than put it all up front. I think you'd gain more than the $10 an acre. So that's two yeah. and a half bushels or even two bushels, depending on the price. So yeah, um, I think a lot of guys just don't do that math. We're looking at dollars per acre. and Yep. Yeah. No, bushel math. Um, can go a long way, you know, when you, I, I try to help guys think through that as well, because, you know, the initial thought right at the end of your nose is cost per acre. But if you can do that in a, you know, what's that come out to in bushels per acre? What do you need to gain? Can we gain it? That type of thing. I mean, those types of conversations kind of flick the switch, you know, and it's like, oh, well, you know, gosh, I only need a bushel and a half to pay for that. You know, same thing with like insecticides or fungicides, that type of thing too. Um, you know, some of those things are cheap enough that the bushels needed to pay for them aren't that much. And, uh, you know, it, and again, season dependent, you know, what are you going to run into? How many more trips you're going to have to make across the field? But, you know, the bushel math to me uh, sometimes can really, you know, flip the switch and, and uh, make the aha moment come around and, and get guys to make a decision like that that's going to benefit them in the long run. Well, I mean, a lot of guys are probably like my dad. My dad is low cost, biggest return. And that's when I was a kid, uh, I remember how that worked out sometimes. Yeah. You know, we we put on the cheapest brake pads on my car one year. And the next year we're putting new brake pads on again. And my yep. dad's like, Jesus Christ, what'd you do? Yeah. I'm like, dad, you put $25 pads on my car. <laughs> like, what do you expect out of those things? But it's it's the same thing. I got a lot of guys that their training really is put the least amount into it I can. And then I try to sell it for the most I can. Yep. And that, that math is really hard to do. And it's really hard to get that every year. Anyway. Um, I talked, I'm writing a newsletter article about rotations and how market prices shouldn't dictate your rotation. Yeah. Um, just talking about how the advantages of, of rotating acres and, so if I'm continuous corn and I pay the yield penalty already, there's no reason for me to go to soybeans because if I start that yield penalty all over again, then I'm I'm out 20 bushels the next year, mm-hmm. um, or well two years down. But right. you know, and if I'm in a, if I'm in a corn bean rotation and I want to go more corn, so then I got to pay a yield penalty to go more corn, or I could stick with the soybeans and take advantage of that rotation benefit or effect that we right. have on corn. And yeah, I think it's a lot easier to make those management decisions and, and let the market not dictate what you're doing, but you dictate what you want to market because you've got everything else planned out. Right. I mean, I don't know how many bags of corn you guys brought back this year for, and traded them out for soybeans, but I did a bunch this spring and it got really old and I'm just like, you guys just, just plant corn. And at the end of the year, the guys who planted corn, they're like, ah, I made more money on corn this year. Like, yeah, yep. I mean, if you're doing it and your neighbors are all doing it, what do you think is going to happen across the Midwest? It's right. Same thing in 2019. Um, 
remember I I don't know if you guys were into this. We got that late planting in nineteen. Yeah. And we got into June. Corn price hit like four and a quarter. And I had guys saying market's dictating and telling me I got to plant corn. I can't keep planting soybeans. And I'm like it's June 9th, you know, June, June 15th yeah. here is <laughs> is bad. And they're literally like mudding corn in in the like second week of June. Yeah. And at the end of the year, it just you know, soybean price came back, corn price came back to reality, and they they lost yield and they didn't even break even. I had guys that didn't take prevent plant on fields because the corn price is so high. And then mm. when we get to the end of the year, it's 120 bushel corn and they lost their butt on it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you would have made more money taking prevent plant than planting in June. But I, I think I learned that lesson in, I think, 2017 up here. We had some late planting. And I had guys that said, if I ever hit June 1st again and I can take prevent plant or plant soybeans, I'm not planting corn. Yeah. And no, we, we ran into that here too. And I actually have, it. it's not a standard form letter, but I've, I've got, uh, took some time and really put everything out there as far as what are the benefits of, or, or when, sh when should you start shifting back relative maturity and when should you just switch completely? And yep. I keep that, you know, as a, as a standby because we've just had those wet springs where that information just comes in handy a lot. And, you you try to outguess the market when you know your gut's probably telling you just switch when you need to switch you got corn and beans are two different crops two different growth habits and you really just almost got to go with mother nature at some point and say you know this is what's going to benefit the crop and then you know benefit me the most so and, we're uh, we're both we're both seed guys and I, I don't know what your experience is with moving northern hybrid south um Ooh, I had two years now where we tried to plant really short maturities. Um, I want to say, I think it was like 09 or one of those years we had guys switching out for like 88 day corn. And they're like, what is this hybrid going to do yeah. when it moves down here? And I'm like, I don't know. We have no data on yeah. 88 day corn in Southeast Wisconsin. And I think that happened in 19 quite a bit. I had a lot of guys yep. that were looking for really short day corn. And I said, honestly, in my experience, the year before we did that, or the last time we had done something like that, we gave up a lot of yield because we didn't know what these hybrids were. Maybe one out of four could take that southern movement that well. And here we are, we're trying to do the same thing again. They're just like, give me 90-day corn. I don't care what it is. I want a 90-day corn. I'm like, oh, this is not good. Yeah. You wouldn't do same... that if you were planting in April either. You wouldn't say, right. just give me 105-day corn. I don't care what it is. Yeah. No, um, I, I've got a, a slide deck on that that I show guys once in a while. And you're right, it was a couple of years ago when that happened. And uh, yeah, when you when you try to plant an early relative maturity hybrid late, you end up treating that uh, early corn. It, it, it turns into an earlier hybrid. So, yeah. you know, you might think you need to switch to a, you know, you're planting 105 day. You think you got to switch to a 95 day hybrid. That 95 day hybrid turns into a 90 day hybrid just based off GDUs and planting date yep. and, and that type of stuff. You know, I, I try to get guys to consider, you know, there's a stair step approach that a guy's got to take to to doing that as you get later into the planting season. And a lot of times you think you need to jump that far ahead, you know, to 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 gain what you need. But really, 
just a stair step of a couple of days can can really do it for you. Well, and I they say it's like every del- day of delayed planning, hybrids reduce their GDUs by like seven a day or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, th- I think it's after May 25th, maybe. Yeah. There, there's a date in there where, yeah, you lose X number of GDUs per day. Yeah. 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 And of course, 2019 didn't really help us because that was a late <laughs> fall. <laughs> it was cool. Right. But yeah, we got yeah, hit on both ends there. Yeah. It, I don't know. We've had beans to me are kind of a crapshoot around here. Sometimes I've had guys that had 50 bushel beans and then I went two miles literally up the road, 70 bushel soybeans. I mean, it just, yeah. and that's more rainfall with corn. We have more of a tolerance, I think, for dry late season than what we do with soybeans too. Yeah. So, and that's, it's been, uh, it's always interesting that to, to try to understand you know, your hybrid stinks and this hybrid stinks and it's like, no, well, this guy says he's getting really good yields and my yields stink and it's all your fault. And I we're always bring back. We're in the business where you learn something every yep. year. I mean, I've had guys down in South Central Iowa that yielded, planted June 10th with 10 inches of rain, yield 65 bushel beans average. I had, uh, I had a guy just east of Cedar Rapids. So Lynn County this year planted June 8th. Got two rounds of hail plus a duratio and still yielded 55. Sure. I mean, for what that area went through to still yield 55 bushel beans on June 8th planting date. Um, yeah, it's amazing what uh, the, the right weather at the right time can fix a lot of things on soybeans. For sure. So my uh, my first time I went home wearing a DeKalb hat <laughs> after getting a job, my grandpa goes, DeKalb sucks. <laughs> And I'm like, Grandpa, you haven't farmed in like 15 years. And he goes, yeah, DeKalb sucks. That was the worst corn I ever grew. And I said, well, what year did you get DeKalb? Because I remember I had a DeKalb hat when I was a little kid. And he goes, yeah. 88, worst year I've ever had. That that DeKalb <laughs> corn was the worst corn. I said, Grandpa, that was the drought year. Yeah. You know, so that's this is like, oh, man. You know, but that's, I think guys have that kind of experience sometimes. You know, I... I had it where I sold seed to somebody and then we had a bad year in that mm-hmm. specific area. And he's just like, your seed that you sold me, it was terrible. And it's like, it, it's not just the seed. There was other things at play. And um, yeah, I've had that happen. I had a guy jokingly, uh, I hadn't talked to this guy since 2016 and now he's a prospect again. And uh, I called him, I think last week and he answers the phone. He's like, yeah, I remember you and, what year was that? And I told him, I think it was 2016. I worked with him. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's right. That was the worst year we ever had. <laughs> and if you didn't know his sense of humor, you would have just yeah. thought he was just like being 100% serious. And I I brought up my grandpa's example. And he just goes, yeah, it wasn't the worst year we ever had. I was like, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, you'll run into that every year. But it's amazing. I'm kind of a weather nerd anyway. Um, you know, not as, you know, in depth and doing the weather math and that kind of stuff. But just seeing what trends are, what happened. And, you know, I, I ran into it last year, guy that was having some major tip back on some irrigated ground and you got to look and then you could tell the kernels were aborted on the tip. And when I, I actually ran the weather data for his area before I went down to visit him. And I mean, figuring out the GDUs from his planning date, I mean, he hit pollination right through some low to mid 90 daytime temps and mid to upper 70 nighttime temps and corn does not care for that and it's a tough conversation to have for sure but i mean 
a lot of those things, you know, it, it's the hybrid, it's the hybrid, it's the hybrid. Well, no hybrid cares for that. And it just so happens that this one in particular, you know, didn't care for 75 degree nighttime temps right through the peak of pollination. So, you know, this was supposed to be 300 bushel corn. It's under irrigation. And it's like, well, you can water it all you want, but when you're baking it and baking the pollen that actually, you know, develops that kernel, that's, you know, those are tough conversations to have. Um, but you know, they're obviously worth having just to get guys to remember that. Yeah. And I, so that's the thing with experience. I've kind of learned how that would look. Um, I remember 2012, we were combining a field that was planted in April and it hit pollination on June or July 4th and, uh, July 4th here was a hundred and some degrees. That Ooh, day. Yeah. And it was like a three, four day stretch where it was in yep. the hundreds. And when we combined that, that fall, I was green carting and we did the headlands. So 24 rows of headlands. I got a cart full out of it on a 15 acre field. Ooh. And so it's about 150 bushel corn in the headlands. Yep. And I went and dumped and I come back down and he goes, might as well just park it. I said, what? He goes, it went from 150 bushel and now it's 30. And at some points that field, you could count the kernels coming in. And what it was, was the heat was able to dissipate out of those head, the headland passes. Yep. So those outside 24 rows were better than the inside. And once you got on the inside of that field, I think at one point right in the combine, I could just about count the kernels coming in. I mean, it was just barren ears. I had some pictures or I've got some pictures uh, from a coworker that he sent me from a drone uh, picture of a couple of fields that he took um, the edge effect this year. I have guys in my territory now that have that have always tried to explain what's going on. They've seen it, but they couldn't explain it. But the edge effect, you know, where you have, you know, majority of your winds when they're hot, you know, coming from the west or the southwest. And if they're rolling right across a bean field and they hit the cornfield and the burnt edges on the, the west or the southwestern side of a cornfield. And, you know, nobody can figure that out. Is it compaction? Is it fertility? What's going mm -hmm. on here? And uh, yeah, I've seen, you know, just hot breezes just bake the edge, you know, on endros. So I, so I've seen that. And then I have guys say that I'm full of crap for that. <laughs> We had, well, I can um, back you up on it. Yeah, we've got a, a mile long road that we have both sides of the road. And usually we'll plant, you know, it just depends on where we end up. But it's very often I put a seed sign on one side of the field or one side of the road and the other side of the road, same soil type, same everything. The same seed sign goes up and they look like totally different hybrids on the west side of the road versus the yeah. east side of the road. Yep. And that east side, I always kind of attribute to uh, maybe even that late afternoon sun, just the amount of heat that's coming off of that sun, that east side, or the eastern facing field doesn't get that afternoon sun sometimes also. Right. And I try to explain that to guys, and it seems like it's only on north-south roads where I see this. And guys are just like, nah, you're full of crap. There's no... <laughs> like no it's serious i'm like it's the same hybrid it's everything's the same there's nothing different between these two fields there's no other reason why this would be any right. different but yeah guys think you're just trying to blame the weather for yeah. something but yeah it's uh i don't know and even so did you read that uh metabolism based uh deal with water hemp and amaranth now yes yeah um, that's scary <laughs> that is quite scary um yeah, <laughs> just uh, another chalk it up to water hemp, just doing what it does. Yeah, um, that's scary. 
Uh, you know, I mean, we're so used to finding a chemical and going out and doing something with it. Um, we've got to find some different ways to manage through this or, you know, guys that continue to continue to do the same thing over and over and over are really setting themselves up to be, uh, in a really a world of hurt when it comes to herbicides and, and weed resistance. It could well, be a real problem. That's the thing I've been harping on a little bit on Twitter. I'm sure you've seen my HPPD mesotrione thing. I mean, I, I really think we've focused so much of our weed control on mesotrione now that's come off patent. Basically, everything's got meso in it. I right. mean, Rescore has it, and um, Acheron obviously has it, but mm -hmm. now they're coming out with Acheron XR, which is more not as watered down as what they <laughs> did in the first place. A higher concentration, yeah. But um it just seems like we're moving more and more towards HPPDs and corn. And then in soybeans, we're leaning more and more on PPOs and, yeah. you know, and we're relying a lot on group 15s for residual control in both. Yeah. And various, a lot of times it's the same group 15 in both it's dual in beans and dual in corn. And it's, it's really scary when you look at metabolism or metabolism based resistance versus what we thought was a site based where we thought, you know, if you had resistant to ALS, well, PPOs are still safe. Well, now the, I don't know, I'm guessing people have maybe haven't heard this, that they're going to listen to this, but so what's going on is they're finding out that it's more of a metabolism based resistance. And instead of where we would have PPOs or something that has a different side of action, be not resistant. Now we're finding out that potentially based on metabolism defenses in the plant that if you have resistance to ALS, some of these amaranth species are going to be resistant to PPOs, HPPDs, uh, group 15s, which would be like dual and or yeah, dual metulachlor, acetochlor. Yep. Um, there's a bunch of different herbicides that are going to fall into that. And that is really scary. So instead of, okay, well, Roundup doesn't work. We'll just use Liberty. Think of it as, what if, if Roundup just stops working, then Liberty is also going to stop working. And that's, that's a scary thought. Um, yeah. That crosses a lot of items off the list really fast. Um, yeah. It's scary for sure. Yeah. And in soybeans, I mean, our basic weed control methods in soybeans are ALS and, and group 15s and, yep. you know, and PPOs. And once we lose those, we're back to square one. Maybe we'll just start spraying ultra blazer and, <laughs> <laughs> all that stuff again get out the cultivators again and uh yeah we have kids riding on uh weed pullers and tractors again and yeah. i was thinking back the other day the last time i pulled weeds in a bean field was i think 1994 summer of okay. 94 i believe so it's been <laughs> a long time since we've actually had to go out there and do some manual labor be interesting. I should look back and see how many acres of beans there were in the United States back in the early nineties, but I would imagine it's not anywhere near what it is now. Yeah. It, it I think it's really jumped. Um, yeah. especially, you know, was it 96, you know, once round of beans came out yeah. and that just, boom, there they went. Yeah. And I don't, I know, I mean, you sell extend flex, I sell enlist. Um, I don't think those are the saviors. Well, the other part of this is, so we'll go there metabolism based resistance they're saying that the same man metabolism pathway is also resistant to oxen herbicides so 240 dicamba yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, so we're left with those beings potentially only having liberty as the mode of action that would work. So it's it's a little scary. Um, and I mean, 24D's been around since the 40s, and that cam has been around since the 60s or 70s. Yep. 60s, and yep. to lose those herbicides would be a, a nightmare, especially in corn uh, corn weed control. So, yeah, I'm not entirely sure how this is all going to work. It's kind of a scary new day. Alfalfa. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Do you, have you ever tried to kill alfalfa that's around a pretty? It's not fun sometimes. It, no, uh, definitely not. Yeah, I've had. Uh, so we have a lot of alfalfa in Wisconsin. I think that's great. Um, but I've got, now that we have Roundup Ready alfalfa going more and more acres, especially with Harv Extra coming out, the lower lignin stuff. Um, killing Roundup Ready alfalfa is not hard if you're, you can use 2,4-D and dicamba. Um, it's easier to do it in fall, but we mm-hmm. had a dry year one fall and without it actively growing on some of these plants, um, I had about half a stand survive in the next spring. We planted um, dicamba resistant, so extend soybeans in it with the intention of spraying dicamba on it. But um, it's with the way that our setback restrictions are, it, out of a 10 acre field, I was only going to be able to spray maybe two or three acres of it. Yeah. And it just, so we tried going in with Flexstar. I tried. Uh, classic and a bunch of different stuff. We got maybe 50% of it. And, you know, Roundup, the saying in Wisconsin, at least, is if you're trying to kill off Alpha, it won't die. But if you're not trying to kill off Alpha, it's going <laughs> to die. I mean, that's just the way it works. Yeah. So that's the first time I ever saw um, HPPD volatilization was in Alpha Alpha. That was kind of different. Oh, wow. Actually, more in the peas that we used as the companion crop for it. But sure. yeah, it drifted, it actually volatilized and moved into the, this, uh, peas and barley mix and it went probably 500 feet into that mix. Ooh. So I don't know if you ever seen HPPDs volatilize and move off target. No. It can. And peas are very sensitive apparently, but, uh, yeah, it, it does. It's kind of a weird thing. You, I didn't know what the heck to think. I thought it was carryover but it's one of those you can make out like a tree line or a field edge in yeah. the other crop. Um, I've done that with that camp before where we had a guy spray uh, distinct on corn and you could make out the tree line in the soybean field next to it. So mm. when it volatilized and the fog kind of drifted over, yep. you could make the trees out in the guy's alfalfa and soybean field. So it was interesting, but yeah, I don't know. You got anything else on basics? I mean, I think we kind of forget some of the ratios that we get with synergy between nitrogen and sulfur. Um, I think even potassium and nitrogen, we forget about that stuff. Mm-hmm. We're usually looking at increasing nitrogen rates, to get more yields, but we also have to focus on like sulfur. And, um, you know, we, we're talking about weed control. We kind of forget some of the basics in weed control. Uh, I got a lot of guys. I mean, I don't know if you ever seen guys when I first started, we had guys that would do a two pass roundup system and it worked great. And yep. now, yeah, you can't do that. So then now we're yep. relying on mesotrio. That's the other part of that. And it's just, we're, we're looking at soybeans and um, trying to get some of those control programs. I have guys that are looking at enlist as a one pass early post. And that's just a bad deal all the way around. Boy. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, you, you, we got to have some sort of residual activity going on there. Um, I, otherwise, yeah, it's gonna, it could be a real mess. So we tried to do that this year. Um, I tried to get away with like a Warren Ultra Roundup blend. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one guy that was very adamant. He didn't want to do a pre-emerge. So we came back really early post. I timed it at like two inch water hemp. Good. And the weather didn't quite cooperate with the PPO. Uh-huh. And yeah, water hemp blew right through some of that. You know, we got a residual control. But by the time we got in there, I mean, they were three, four inches tall. It was perfect timing for spraying. But we had just a solid carpet of water hemp. And even at 90% control, you know what 10% looks like in a field. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's that easy and basic button we used to have is completely gone. Um, you know, we, we look at even micronutrients guys are really interested in micros now. Um, I'm not sure if you, you I'm sure you've heard about pivot bio stuff. Yeah. Um, and it seems like everybody's coming out with that now. So yep. we're, uh, Karen Corrigan posted last night about those a little bit. She didn't call out any like specific company, but she said, you know, no, no enzyme is going to replace fertilizer pretty much, or, you know, you're not going to be able to cut back on fertilizer because of something like that. Um, I don't think that they're there yet. I think we're still too early for that kind of stuff to make up for all of our nitrogen needs or I'm looking at, we're going to test some of pivot bio this year uh, just to see if we can get some more late season and out of it, but we'll see how that works. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff coming and a lot of things being looked at and a lot of research going on in those things, which is good. I mean, you know, I'm glad at least, you know, we're not sitting back on our heels and just relying on the same old, same old stuff. There are people out there that are really pushing to find some different things and, and uh, finding the, the interest in that to go ahead and do it. And there's a couple of things that have come up that have really shown some good promise and, you know, we're the same way at Bear. We spend a lot of money on research and uh, trying to find those little things that can just help us, you know, extend the life of a herbicide or, you know, a completely new mode of action, those types of things, just something different that, uh, you know, that can get us further along in the farming operation. So yeah, I think in the pipe with Bear, I'm fairly certain you guys are going to have a new corn grass weed control option. Yeah. It's a new active Yep. Um, I know there was at one point, um, we'll talk about SmartStack Pro, but that yep. RNAi technology was supposed to be put into a spray tank where you could actually spray, potentially spray like a water hemp plant with a specific RNA interference and make it so that it blocks that pathway that makes it resistant to Roundup. Um, so there's options there. I think we get kind of lucky with the fact that a majority of the uh, coronavirus vaccines are going to be based on RNAi or mRNA. Yep. Um, I think the public acceptance of or acceptance of that is going to be a lot higher. Hopefully, yeah, we'll see how that works. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it will come around faster than maybe what we, you know, if we hadn't had this whole virus thing. Uh, I think it'd be more easily accepted or maybe I'm going to say understood, maybe Um, people will know about it. People will hear about it. So yeah, SmartStacks Pro is now approved. So we're hoping to actually get some larger scale field trials out this summer um, in some heavy corner worm pressure areas too. But that's, you know, that 
that's almost in the same boat as our herbicide resistance. You know, we've got traits that are being overpowered. Um, we're coming up with a new one to stack with it. Um, we're going to have to get something else right behind it, um, which is already in the works. But I mean, you know, those things take time, money and getting those through the system uh, to make sure that they're approved and, and safe and ready to go. So, you know, it's it's uh, you always got to be on the move one step I, ahead of it. I don't necessarily think that the traits are feeling 100 um, percent. No, I know there there's spots and even Wisconsin had a Herculex break. Um, I want to say it was confirmed this year we had a resistance population to Herculex and it's not as much the resistance as it is just pressure. Guys, yeah. yeah. You know, when you, we use insecticide plus a trait and we still see rootworm feeding guys get kind of nervous about it. Mm -hmm. And even at its best and insecticide is only going to gain you about 50% control and on a trait, the best it's only ever going to get you is about 80% control. You know, and even in herbicides, I mean, most herbicides, you're really good if you can do about 98 to 99% control. Right. But if you got a plant that puts out a million seeds, you know, 2% is going to be 2,000 plants in a field. And same thing with rootworms. Uh, they still got to feed to get the trade into them. They still yep. got to, they're still going to be eating those roots on the outside of your, any kind of zone that you're going to put down with a T-band on insecticide. And it's, it's scary, the pressure we're getting from those. And yeah the same thing with water hemp we just we're getting weeds that you know i'd rather have a ragweed that puts out five thousand seeds per plant <laughs> and it's a huge plant and it takes up a huge thing in the field instead of this little plant that puts out like a million seeds and yeah now you got to deal with all those offspring so yeah the corn rootworm pressure in 2020 was amazing and you know again i bring up the weather thing again look at how much warmer our winters have been or how how late our winters have started um you know even even with your uh, your example of the soil temperatures underneath snow that's insulation versus bare ground yep. i mean i don't know if we really know how cold for how long it's got to be before we really crush a population of corn rootworm and then you know it's, so to have a couple of warm winters um and just the timing of some of the storms that came through iowa last year that's really what flipped the trigger for some guys to start doing some digs and then once we got in there with them it was pretty amazing and of course it would it would be in the areas where guys have been corn on corn for you know a decade or you know five ten years plus yeah. um no haven't had any problems before with standability and you know if, if you don't see it guys sometimes just don't get out there and start digging for roots and doing, you know, root soaks and things like that floating for corn rootworm. But last year uh, was a pretty eye-opening experience. And it's really tough for me as an agronomist to, you know, make some recommendations to, you know, rotate to a crop just to break that life cycle. And you got guys that are just like, yeah, we, you know, we did that once 10 years ago and uh, the beans didn't work out very well. So we just went back to corn. <laughs> so it's like, you know, we can only do so much and the traits can only, uh, you know, they're as good as they are, but, uh, again, it's overpressuring. I, I liken it to, you know, uh, one person going into a casino and, uh, trying not to smell like smoke when they come out, you know, yep. you might have one guy across the room smoking, but you get 500 of them over there pulling the slots. Uh, chances are you're going to stink when you get out of there. So what well, I get guys that think that they just need to rotate traits so maybe we're planning Ooh. monsanto genetics and we're going to go to herculex well smart stacks has got it right um yep and our you know on pioneer side we have agrisher rootworm plus herculex 
And you know how Monsanto's trait works with Agrisure. Usually there's a cross resistance between those two. Um, so you're really not gaining a ton. Um, I've had guys that are like, well, we'll just go with Duracade. I'm like, all right, well, I don't think the genetics quite match the trait there. But even with Duracade, the first year it came out, they found a resistant population to Duracade right away. And yeah. so it's it, we're not getting a ton by rotating traits um, and even applying insecticides. You know, I, I'd say looking at Ag Talk, the amount of people asking about bifenthrin this year. It's oh, just been astronomical, and yeah, I don't know what your experience with capture or any of those generic bifenthrins are. Rootworm control is just nothing with them. The best you can get out of bifenthrin is secondary pest. Yeah, um, don't have a lot of experience with that, but I know the question is coming up quite a bit, especially you know yep. last summer, and uh, you know what are my other options? And boy, I mean, guys that throw well, I'll just throw an insecticide with a smart stacks. You know, if you've got a, a population that's overpowering the trait, you've got an insecticide that's only going to give you, you know, X percentage of control. All of a sudden you start exposing bugs that are resistant to a trait to, you know, another mode of action, the insecticide. Yep. How soon before they start overpowering the insecticide and then you're really in trouble. So, yeah, yeah some pretty tough conversations around that stuff, too. Well, and the other thing that's scary is... Um, I've had meetings where you talk about beetle bombing. So we're, we're talking about going mm -hmm. out at R3, R4, trying to hit them with insecticide. Yep. And then we got guys that are like, well, I, screw that. If I'm going out at VT with a fungicide, I'm just going to throw insecticide in as a cheap insurance. And, you know, all you got to do is ask those guys in Minnesota how aphids are going up there. And they've got aphids that are resistant to pyrethroids. Right. So now we're going to start talking about that too. If we lose pyrethroids, well, goodbye soil applied insecticides. And it's just, I think at that point, yeah, then we're talking about rotating and trying to go to soybeans or wheat or something for a couple of years just to, before we go back to corn. Um, yeah. I, think, I think you and I were talking about that the other day. You had somebody reach a planter 24 rows into a soybean field. That yeah was, yeah and first Virginia's first year corn on corn yeah. I mean it yeah just that many rows I should send you that picture it's interesting I mean you just and they've never had any issues out there but you could see right to the line where that corn got planted into last year's cornfield so it would have been first year corn on corn just for that many rows and boy the standability was just night and day and I had I had a dairy that somebody told them first year corn on corn that you're okay without traits and i Whoa. we put rootworm traps i couldn't get the counts were low enough and i didn't see any plants leaning we didn't see a ton of root feeding and i told the guy i'm like you're really you know it, it might work Plant out this fire. year but one of these years you're gonna get it and yeah. it's gonna be a nightmare and you're gonna hate yourself for doing this you know just trying to save 20 30 bucks an acre when we were in some tougher times you know, four years down the road, it's, you're going to pay for that somehow. Right. And so, again, it comes down to doing that math, right? I mean, a guy looks yeah. at the price of a bag of seed, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 bucks, whatever that is. But when you do it on an acre basis, you know, divide that by 2.2 or 2.3, whatever your population is. And it's, it's an easier pill to swallow when you see the math and, you know, every one of those nodes on a, on a corn plant that gets chewed off is 15% of your yield. So, um, I saw this a couple of years ago on a guy that rotated every five years. He was on his fourth year corn on corn and 
he had some pre-seed dropped off from a company. It was 150 bucks a bag. Oh man, this is great. And he put it out there and then had a storm come through and everything was leaning and he calls me up to check it out. Wasn't, wasn't our stuff, but it was the competitors. I went out there anyway, and man, the beetles and stuff were thick. And, you know, that's, we had an educational, you know, session right there. We dug the plants on both sides and, and did the root floats and everything else. And, you know, when you're 10, 15, 20 plus beetles per plant and, and the yield ended up being about that. He, he had lost, I think the, the field average on smart stacks that he had uh, was 240 and uh, the rootworm pressure stuff that, that couldn't handle it was 170. So, I mean, it was just, you know, so then of course the conversation about price per bag come up, but then I went back out there in the fall and we did the math and, you know, I was getting, I was getting chewed on pretty hard for bag price um, for what our, our sales folks were selling it for. But uh, you know, if you did the math, boy, he would have been money ahead if he just would have left I that almost, stuff alone. I almost got bit with that once. I had a guy, uh previous salesperson I was working with him was selling him all smart stacks and I don't know, 500 acres of corn. The guy had one farm that he, it was continuous corn every year because it was under pivot. And we went with double pros on all but that field. At least that was the plan. I showed up at the planner that day when they first started getting ready to load the planner up for that specific corn and corn field. And there was a brown bag getting open to go put in the planner. <laughs> I was like, no, these orange ones, those are the ones you want. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, you just, I had that happen once. I had a guy, um, it, it's a, it's not a dairy, but they do custom heifers up here and mm. they had some corn on beans and some corn on alfalfa. And I recommended a hybrid for that specific field. And he planted, I don't know, it must've been 36 rows into another field. And I got a call that fall and they're like, there's what the heck's going on. Yep. You know? And yeah. Oh yeah. That's the first time I ever saw a rootworm that bad where it was continuous corn the, for several years before that. Yeah. And they decided to just keep planting into that field. And yeah, it's uh, not something I ever want to see again, but yeah, I know Southwest Wisconsin is pretty much a nightmare. Uh, I'm sure it's not a whole lot better for you guys. Um, it's getting here. I've got some dairies. We're finding 20 beetles. Uh, it's getting there. So, mm -hmm. but yeah. And then you throw that on top. So on a dairy side, which I don't know how many dairies you guys deal with, but it's probably not as many as up here. Yeah. <laughs> but on the dairy yeah. side, it's, they have to have corn. So right. then you, your rotation is alfalfa for five years and they don't necessarily want to do that on right. some of these fields. And yeah, we just get to such high levels. And then you've got hybrids that typically a dairy hybrid, a pure silage hybrid agronomically isn't as strong as, you know, even a dual purpose or, just a green hybrid. So then you start taking away more chunks of that pie when you start losing stuff to rootworm feeding. It's not sure. like, you know, you know how it is when um, any hybrid we've got gets even tar spot just a little bit, doesn't do too much to it. But, you know, when you take dairy hybrids and more silage hybrids and give them gray leaf spot and orange corn leaf blight, it's just a nightmare. Yeah. And quality goes down really fast and it dries faster and, it goes way the other way real quick. So yeah. And those diseases just hang out there all winter long, <laughs> coming back for, you know, another feeding here, you know, the following year when corn's planted again. So it just repeats the cycle, unfortunately. 2020 was like the year with no tar spot. I could, it was, I had to look for it. 
and it was just weird to see after two years of having terrible tar spot. Yeah. That I had to try to find the stuff. Yeah, we had it in pockets. Um, but yeah, I mean, once it turned off dry, it seemed like, um, yeah, it didn't show up nearly as, uh, as thick maybe as it was in 2019 or even 2018. Uh, we had, yeah, a couple of years there, some pockets in Northeast Iowa that really got it um, really well. And I mean, it's, it's all over out there. So, um, we kind of got lucky last year, at least with limited, um, you know, I don't, I don't think there was any yield loss or anything like that last year, a little bit the year before, especially in pockets. I mean, it really spread, you know, 2019, but, uh, yeah, that's just another one of those things that's, you know, we're screening for that now. It's something that kind of crept up on us and, um, now it's one of those things that's at the top of the list. We, you know, just another thing we have to check the box for to try and find genetics and, you know, fungicides or whatever that are, they're going to help protect from that too. Are you guys seeing gall midge in your area at all yet? Or Not, <laughs> not over here, okay. but you get along the, uh, you know, Missouri river over that way. And it's, it's pretty thick over there. Um, I know some guys that uh, two years ago, yeah, they had gotten it really thick. And I mean, we're working with those guys to, uh, you know, just try some different things. Iowa State University in Nebraska, University of Nebraska have gotten together to do a bunch of uh, research on that. So that's been very helpful as far as, you know, trying to figure something out. Um, you know, is there some sort of control? Is there a certain timing of control that helps out with that? Still tough. I mean, you know, those midges are like they'll you know i can't remember how many would fit on your pinky nail but i mean they're really small and they you know their life cycle is so fast but um you know people finally have pictures of them now but uh no i i have uh communications with uh co-workers of mine i'm like well i'll keep tar spot over east if you keep gall midge <laughs> over west you know but uh, unfortunately I've already let tar spot get over that far and, uh, they're threatening me with gold midge, but it seems like that's been holding off over there. Um, so yeah, Eastern Iowa or the Eastern half of the state really hasn't seen anything like that. And we just kind of cross our fingers and hope yeah, that gold midge is just, I mean, the, the control options for gold midge are nothing. I mean, I, right. I, yeah. They've tried seed treatment. They've tried spraying at post-emerge. Yep. Not much has been really and they're they're almost calling it like you said, they just now are getting pictures of it because they had no clue yeah. even what it was and trying to figure this one out. It's more of an anomaly than it is anything. We can't, they don't know what they're dealing with yet. Right. And yeah, it's, um, that's the thing, you know, we're you know, talking about coronavirus, you know, this stuff started halfway across the world and it was here in like two weeks or a month <laughs> or two. It didn't take and, very long, did it? Yeah. It's, it's funny how fast some of the stuff's going to start showing up and, I mean, I got, I lost an ash tree to em or, or emerald ash borer oh, yeah. um, last year. We had to cut it down and now I've got another one in my front yard. That's still okay. But, um, I'm an agronomist and I know how to use imidacloprid and <laughs> we make it work. <laughs> Once I figured out the back one was going, so the front one started getting treated and it's actually working really good. And it's a, unfortunately it's a bear product that I use, but <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I think actually my, my lawn stuff's mostly bear. Um, bear has some really good home lawn yes. use stuff and, um, and I'm not using Roundup for lawns, which I think confuses <laughs> a lot of people still. So it's, it's funny. They're like Roundup for lawns. It's going to, you're spraying Roundup on your yard. I'm like, man, I don't know who the advertising genius for that was, but 
Yeah, I don't get that one. It's what is Roundup for Lawns is Sulfentrazone, I think Turflon Ester and Dicamba. And that's all that's in it. But and, and they're they were like, oh, so many people know about Roundup, we're just gonna put Roundup on it, and yeah. then they get sued. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> that was a bad decision. Don't grab the wrong jug. But I actually noticed I used Roundup for Lawns one year and I noticed I would say reduced weed control in my yard. Um, the sulfenture zone is nice because of the residual. Um, mm-hmm. If you wanted to go off label and accidentally spill some chlorpyrrolid in there, <laughs> it'd probably be better. Um, I don't know. I used to have a Dow sales guy that would say that uh, Forefront's a great herbicide for your yard. I'm like, what's in Forefront? He's 2,4-D and Stinger. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, don't do that in your lawn because any perennial trees are going to go poof pretty quick. You're basically spraying crossbow on your yard. So yeah, ouch. That could be a bad day. Yeah. So no, um, that's kind of what we wanted to talk about. I guess we kind of went way off topic anyway because we don't talk too often. But there's a lot of different things that we deal with. Um, I mean, Wisconsin's unique. Um, I was talking to a client of mine. Uh, must've been last week. And he goes, I don't, I just don't understand though that you understand this, but we have a microclimate over here. And I'm like, dude, there, we have microclimates all over the place. We're so close to the lake. The lake influences a lot of things. There's, there's parts of my drive where you'll go five miles and the temperature will drop 20 degrees. And in fall, one part will still have leaves on the trees and the other part won't. One part they're churning and one part they're not. It's weird how many little environments we have around here um i have areas in my territory where i grow 105 to 110 day corn and then you go 50 miles and i'm in 90 some day corn and that's we don't really push much over 100 wow so imagine being in northeast iowa and you have to know the seed guide from 92 day corn all the way up through 113 day corn and i have to go to like two meetings just to be able to do this yeah they're like, oh, we have a meeting for 105 to 115 day corn. And then tomorrow we're going to have the 95 to 105 day corn. I'm like, well, I guess I have to go to both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's a different thing up here. It's always fun, but and I'm sure you guys have, I mean, with the river influence and stuff too. Right. I mean, I've been around Dubuque and some of that area and it's, it's a different animal, especially with some of the elevation changes you guys probably deal with too. A lot, yeah, hills and valleys. And now my territory is mostly east, central, and southeast. But I mean, you get south of, you know, let's say Dubuque, you know, you get down into Muscatine and along the river there, you've got a lot of blow sand and that type of stuff going on there. So it just really changes. And then some really heavy, thick, you know, black river bottom ground that just stays wet and will never dry out. Um, timber soils you know as you get even further south there too and but some really good stuff too and it's it's amazing you know how far we've come there's a you know a lot of hybrids out there that are you know soil type specific or you know environment specific but there's a lot more too that are you know coming out that are able to handle a majority of those types of situations still comes down to you know how much rain are you going to get at the right time to make sure that everything just finishes off right but um we've come a long ways you know, as far as genetics and being able to push through a lot of these things that, that are being tossed at us. So hopefully we just continue on that path and, and, uh, bring the good stuff. Yeah. I'd say things have changed quite a bit since I've been in agriculture, which, you know, my entire life, but in agronomy, the last like 15 or 16 years, 
you know, I've seen yields probably go up about 20 to 30 percent. Um, herbicides haven't changed, but we just have different repackages <laughs> of the same ones. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, fertilizer use has changed. And I think a lot of guys, when I've done soil sampling the last few years, the guys that I've been working with, I think the removal charts need to be updated based on our higher yielding corns we have. Um, I think we're pulling off a lot more nutrients than what we realize that our higher higher yields are pulling off. Yeah. Um, even in, like we figure it's like 1.2 pounds of K per bushel on soybeans. Um, and I think it's probably more than that. Um, you know, we, they've updated the uh, tri-state racks and I haven't really paid a whole lot of attention to them. We've been utilizing those in some of the updated variable rate fertilizer racks, but I got to kind of delve into that a little bit more and try to understand how much that's changed. And yeah, no, and, and that you bring up a good point too, you know, doing uh working on putting together winter meetings and you know pre-planting meetings and stuff like that that's another thing that comes up a lot is you know we talked about fertility a little bit there but just getting guys to understand you know where are you at in your program are you maintaining you know is this rented ground are you just running a maintenance program um what are your bushels that you're pulling out or you know are you like you said are you are you maintaining or are you building and you know depending on your yields boy you could really be you know, one step forward, two steps back. And then after a couple of years, all of a sudden you're uh, running into some stock quality issues or yield penalties and those types of things. It's, it's just good to have those conversations to remind guys that, uh, you know, got to be paying attention to what's going on out there. And, and not that you have to understand every single segment of a soil sample, but uh, understand, at least get a baseline of where you're at and understand where you want to go, your yield goals and those types of things and, and know, you know, what your key limiting factors are, because, you know, once once you can get those under control or at least get a handle on what those are, you at least got a plan or, you know, can move forward and, uh, you know, get those things right where they need to be to help everything sure. else come back around. Yeah, I think we're going to be looking at, um, I know fertilizer prices have gone up quite a bit lately, mm-hmm. but uh, that that margin between fertilizer price and input prices right now and the way the corn price is, um, I, I got a lot of guys that were, I s- sent a few guys a thing yesterday saying, hey, we're approaching pricing before the drop. Basically, we had a drop, what, two weeks ago on a Friday. And I said, we're basically getting back to those levels yesterday before the report came out. Um, and I said, you know, you guys didn't sell then. And then you kicked yourself for not selling when it went back down. And now we're approaching that level. What are you guys going to do? Well, now I think I just got a text while we were talking that beans were down like 40 some cents today. Oh. <laughs> I, <laughs> I hope I had a few guys sell it yesterday. And um, But if you can lock in a profit and <sighs> and we can lock in a really good margin for this year, it, it's going to be a good thing when we start looking at tile this fall, uh, yep. lime, P and K. I'd, I'd rather guys spend money on that stuff than, you know, I got to have furrow force on my planner from precision planning <laughs> just because right. I need to close the trench. I think we're going to gain more from something like that. Tile is the thing guys always say pay every time. And yep. I think we're going to get to that point where we need to start looking at, you know, 2012 when we had really high prices that we went out and bought a bunch of equipment and we wrote like just went crazy on land rent and, and yep. trying to buy stuff. And now I think it's, hopefully some of those guys remember that where we get back to we're just reinvesting in what we do have and 
yeah. and trying to improve that too. I've had a lot of guys drop acres in the last few years based on the higher land rent. Yep. They're looking at it as I can do a better job on less acres and get just as much money as if I had a, a buttload of acres and my right. equipment's not getting used up. And so, I mean, it's, it's a different thought process. Um, yeah. But I don't know. We, we get CFAP and PPP and all, all these really <laughs> weird definitions. Yeah. And you start getting all that kind of money too. And you, you want to spend it on stuff. And now that I run a business, I fully understand my wife gets all mad and she's like, we're going to pay taxes. And I'm like, I'd rather be paying taxes than, you know, showing a, a, a total deficit. And right. she, the accountant in her, I think wants us to lose money every year in our business. <laughs> And I'm just like, I'm not my dad. I, I don't have cows just to lose money. You know? Right. So, no, I just, I think we got to get to that point where if we're paying, if I'm paying taxes, I'm happy. Um, I'd rather pay tax and have a good year than, yeah. you know, trying to figure out how much of this year's losses I can take into next year. And, you know, and then that cycle repeats itself. The next year we have a high price or good prices and then you're, trying to move the year before and the next year into that year also to try to get that price yeah. down. And he's just getting a really bad cycle that way. Yep. Snowballs in a hurry. But yeah. And it's, it's sunny here at least now. I think nice. the last time we talked, it was snowing by you guys. We never got any of that snow. Oh, we got, gosh, I just talked to you the other day. We got three or four inches out of that. It was a light fluffy stuff. I could blow it off with the leaf blower, but uh, cloudy here. And just getting colder. I think today was supposed to be the warmest day of the next five days. So I just got to reply all email. <laughs> like, oh man, I have to reply to all to everybody to say thank you. <laughs> gotta love those. I'm just looking at what the temperature is here at the house. I've got, I don't know if you have a weather station here. I got a Davis Vantage Pro here at the house. I can get it to work. I don't have one of those here. They're nice. It's nice to have. Um, except for every time I something breaks on it, I got to go up on the second floor roof to Ooh. fix it. Uh, 10 degrees, 9.8 right now. Blowing mm. 9 mile an hour, so it feels like 1. It's about but, where we're uh, at. 12 degrees, and it's uh, 11 mile an hour. feels like minus 1. Well, let's wrap it up on this part. And uh, thanks for coming. Yeah, absolutely, man. I appreciate it.